Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's Shakespeare. I'm Dr. J. In today's episode, I'll be discussing a passage from Shakespeare's comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream. The subject of A Midsummer Night's Dream is the irrationality of erotic love, that is, the irrationality of the kind of love that often leads to marriage, though perhaps just as often leads to heartbreak, and sometimes both. These are serious things, marriage and heartbreak, and thus I take A Midsummer Night's Dream seriously, even though as a comedy there is much that is silly, or at least unbelievable. With only a little reflection, though, what is silly in Shakespeare is often at the same time serious, and what is unbelievable becomes human truth. A Midsummer Night's Dream gets underway when an irate father comes before the Duke of Athens with a complaint against his daughter, Hermia. The father has chosen a husband for his daughter, but she refuses to marry him. She has chosen another suitor to be her husband. But as the father reminds the duke, the law of Athens gives fathers the right to dispose of their daughters as they please, and daughters must obey under penalty of death. The duke, as dukes are wont to do, sides with the father, telling Hermia that she must consent to marry her father's choice, and that if she refuses, she then must choose either to die or else to refuse the company of all men and become a nun. When Hermia still refuses her consent, the duke gives her four days to think it over. During this scene, the two suitors, Demetrius, the father's choice, and Lysander, Hermia's choice, have been on stage, each pleading his case with the duke. Don't worry if you can't get their names straight. Part of the point of A Midsummer Night's Dream is that the two suitors are essentially indistinguishable, the only difference between them being that Hermia loves Lysander and her father prefers Demetrius. Once the duke has told Hermia that she must return to him in four days and declare her decision, he leaves the stage, followed by Hermia's father and the father's choice, Demetrius, leaving Hermia and her choice, Lysander, alone on the stage. Together, they lament their situation and then come to a decision. Before the four days are up, they will steal away together and never more return to Athens. At this point, a new character enters, Helena, a young woman like Hermia, and in fact Hermia's best friend. Hermia and Lysander, trusting Helena to keep their secret, tell her their plan. There's even something in it for Helena, for Helena loves Demetrius, though he doesn't return her love, but once Helena is gone, Hermia says, Demetrius may turn his love to her. This isn't entirely unlikely, as before he saw Hermia, Demetrius had declared his love for Helena. Confused? Don't worry. A Midsummer Night's Dream is a play about love's confusions. Suffice it to say that two young men love Hermia, and no young man, at least no young man she's interested in, 
loves Helena. Following their disclosure of their plan to Helena, Hermia and Lysander depart and leave Helena alone on the stage. Helena then laments her fate, expressing as she does both the pain of love unreturned and the irrationality of love, which she experiences as unfairness. To express love's irrationality, she turns to the image of Cupid, the blindfolded child whose arrows cause those they strike to fall in love for no rational reason. At the conclusion of her lament, Helena then determines her own course of action. Against all logic, she will tell Demetrius of Hermia and Lysander's plan so that he will be able to prevent Hermia's escape. Let's listen both to her lament and to the reason she gives herself for a determination that is against her own self-interest, not to mention a betrayal of her best friend. Then I'll look at her words more closely for the serious insight they provide into both the nature of erotic love and the essential unhealthiness both of her feelings and her self-destructive decision. Helena how happy some or other some can be. Through Athens I am thought as fair as she, but what of that? Demetrius thinks not so. He will not know what all but he do know. And as he errs, doting on Hermia's eyes, so I, admiring of his qualities. Things base and vile, holding no quantity, Love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind, nor hath love's mind of any judgment taste. Wings and no eyes figure unheedy haste, and therefore is love said to be a child, because in choice he is so oft beguiled. As waggish boys in game themselves forswear, so the boy love is perjured everywhere. For, ere Demetrius looked on Hermia's eye, he hailed down oaths that he was only mine. And when this hail some heat from Hermia felt, so he dissolved and showers of oaths did melt. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight, then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. She exits. This is Helena's lament. How happy some, that is, those who are loved, or other some, those who aren't loved, can be. Hermia is loved and Helena isn't, at least not by the boy she loves. Such is life's cruelty. I used to ask my students who was better looking, Hermia or Helena. Hermia would be the first reply because that's the way we, our culture, ourselves, think. The best looking get the dates, etc., but others hesitate, and the very next line tells us all that they're right to do so. Through Athens, Helena reflects, 
I am thought as fair as she. No, one is not better looking than the other. This is the objective, rational truth. Yet this doesn't cheer Helena up. But what of that, Helena asks. Demetrius thinks not so. He will not know what all but he do know. What matters isn't what's objectively true, but only what the young man she has feelings for thinks. Rationally, and Helena is capable of rational thought, though not rational feeling, Helena knows the problem. As he errs, she observes, so I. She is no more right in doting on Demetrius than he is in doting on Hermia. Love transposes what the eye sees into something more. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. I have to admit, I stumbled over this line for a long time. I thought the whole problem was that we only look with the eyes and not the rational mind. But that assumes that the mind Shakespeare means is the rational mind. But here Shakespeare asks us to think more deeply about our minds, our brains even. The eye carries to our mind the same thing it carries to every mind. But minds respond differently to what they see, not the rational mind, but the feeling mind, which despite our best efforts, is dominant. We see this most acutely in erotic love, but it's true as well in almost every other aspect of our lives. Thus is winged Cupid painted blind. Okay, blind, but why winged? Wings and no eyes, Helena reflects, figure unheedy haste. Unheedy haste. Unheedy, Microsoft Word tells me by the red line that appears under it when I type it, isn't the word. But here it's the perfect word. We fall in love too swiftly, without taking heed. Love is both blind and winged. And therefore love is said to be a child, because in love he is so oft beguiled. Helena knows all this, so now she can think and act rationally. Well, no. Knowing what she rationally knows is no help to her at all. What does she do? She tells us what she's going to do, and also tells us why. And though A Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy... Her determination isn't funny, but deeply painful. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight, she thinks to herself, meaning Demetrius. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. What she still wants from Demetrius is some positive look, any positive look, and by helping him keep Hermia, he will look at her for once with gratitude. This will cost her, she knows, but it will be a dear expense. Here, let's pause and go to the dictionary. Dear has two meanings. Familiar to us all is the meaning we associate with fondness and affection, and since Helena has feelings of fondness and affection for Demetrius, we might just pass on. 
But the word expense brings to mind another, less familiar meaning of dear. That which is costly is dear. We rarely use dear for this meaning today, but it was a common use not only in Shakespeare's time, but right through the 19th century. So which meaning does Shakespeare intend here? Fond or costly? If I have thanks, it is a dear expense. For me, used to the English of Shakespeare's day and of the American 19th century, the second meaning comes first to mind. It will be a costly expense. It will cost Helena a lot, feelingly, to do this, but the more familiar meaning doesn't go away. It will be an expense that she will feel fondly toward. And here we come fully to face the unhealthiness of Helena's feelings. Herein mean I to enrich my pain. Psychology has a word for this, masochism. But having said it this once, I won't say it again. It's an ugly word. When we use it, we make ourselves uglier human beings. We also impoverish our thought. When I think about the range of human psychologies, I always think in terms of Shakespeare's characters rather than quasi-medical psychological terms. It keeps my thinking rich and human. And when I think of Shakespeare's characters, it isn't just because I recognize others I know in them, or even primarily because I recognize others I know in them. It's because I recognize different facets of myself in them. I recognize part of myself in Helena, unhappily, but also a different, healthier part of myself in Hermia, who is more bold and more self-confident. She doesn't find her self-worth in the judgment of others. Having both to ponder in my heart, I can consciously try to bring Hermia forward within myself. As I talked about Shakespeare with my students, this was something I emphasized. They can't be confined to a single character, nor can they be confined to a single moment. What follows the passage I just read is the night the four lovers spend in the woods. Come the following morning, all of them will be in a better place, Helena included. We talked about how this night in the woods corresponds to their actual lives. In the first place, it is a dramatic compression. The lover's night in the woods, with all its confusions and turnabouts, will in their lives be not a matter of hours, but of a year or two or three or four. It may be decades. Patience in our lives isn't just a virtue. It's a necessity. Don't act in unheedy haste, but be confident. During her night in the woods, Helena exclaims, I am as ugly as a bear. But we know it isn't so, not for Helena and not for ourselves. I haven't touched in this episode on the wild magic in the woods of A Midsummer Night's Dream. I will in a future episode. I hope you'll continue to listen twice each month to Dr. J. Shakespeare for more of the many riches Shakespeare offers us. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.